This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So my daughter, Ava, she just finished kindergarten this year, uh, just a couple months ago, and she did well. She learned a lot. She made some good friends, had a great year. I'm honestly kind of impressed about it. I'm very proud of her. But if I can rewind back to the first day of school, I was a mess. I was having a pretty hard time, and that's because Ava is my firstborn. My princess, I'm going to cry. <laughs> She's my baby girl, and for years I've been able to protect her, keep her out of harm's way, teach her everything that I could possibly teach her, and prepare her for anything that would be coming her way. But now I'd be sending her off into the real world, into the unknown. I know, it's just kindergarten, I know. <laughs> but for me, it felt like I was sending her off to college. It felt like she was getting married and starting her own life. <laughs> and you know what? I'm just going to decide right now that she's not going to college, she's not getting married. I'm not even sure if she's going to go to first grade. Sorry, Ava. <laughs> no, but I do remember Jenny and I dropping her off on her first day and then I just kept constantly wondering if she was okay. She had, she had such a beautiful heart. Gosh. <laughs> and she's so kind and so timid. And throughout the day, I couldn't help but wonder, is she okay? Is she lonely? Is anybody being mean to her? Does she have any bullies? But the thing is, aside from being a weirdo and spying on her, there was nothing that I could do. And I just had to be okay with that. But all that to say, that reminds me of how I think Paul might have felt when he couldn't be with his church family in, in Thessalonica. And so we're continuing our series in First Thessalonians. And so here Paul was on a second missionary journey when he planted the Thessalonian church. It was a relatively short visit with the church there. However, um, he grew very, very close to them, grew very fond of them. And even in the short time that he was there, in classic Paul fashion, he'd already ruffled a few feathers, made it really difficult for the leadership there, the Jewish people, the city officials, uh, because he was declaring that Jesus is Lord. And that's, again, that's blasphemy to them who say that Caesar is the true king. And long story short, there was a mob that formed, riots that, uh, in the city that drove Paul out. And Paul was saddened, deeply, deeply saddened. But there was word going around, rumors flying, that Paul didn't care for the Thessalonian church. And if he did, he'd be physically present with them, and he just left at the first sight of trouble, that he was in it for himself. And considering that this was a young church facing persecution, possibly feelings of abandonment, here in chapter 2, we see that Paul felt the need to defend himself, clear the air, and explain why he couldn't be with them in person. And so he writes this part of the letter to let them know how much he wanted to be with them. And in doing so, now we get the privilege of learning from his relationship with the Thessalonians and gaining insight into how the church ought to function and how we are to navigate life as followers of Christ, especially during difficult times. I don't know what everyone is walking into redemption with this morning, Maybe you've, got, maybe you've just gotten through a difficult season in your life. 
Maybe you're in the midst of it. Or maybe it's just around the corner. I don't think anyone here expects life to be easy. But the real concern is whether we fall under the weight of affliction or will we withstand it. And so the title of today's sermon, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. The title is Remaining Firm in Affliction. Remaining Firm in Affliction. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through 310, and we'll take this time to reflect on a few observations that we can draw from this passage, especially when adversity comes our way. And so we're going to be taking a look at four reminders when faced with affliction. Four reminders when faced with affliction. The first reminder is this. Followers of Christ are meant to be actively present in each other's lives. Followers of Christ are meant to be actively present in each other's lives. Let's read chapter 2, verse 17 together. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And so we know that Paul and the church have grown very dear to each other. And he's explaining to the Thessalonian church that he was torn away from them. Now, the Greek word that's used here translates to orphaned. And so Paul feels like a father having his children ripped away from him, even in that short time. He says that even though he's not with them physically, his care for them has not changed. He's with them at heart. And even then, it's still agonizing for him uh, to be away from them like this. And so he said he's made every effort to see them face to face. See, Paul understood that the Christian life is simply better done in person because relationships are better in person. See, God himself is a relational God. See, even before any of us came to be, God existed in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity says that the loving Father, the beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit were bonded in perfect harmony together. And so we, when he created humanity in his image, It was designed with relationship in mind. It's the way it was meant to be. So much so that Paul, even if Paul couldn't absolutely be with them in person, he was going to send Timothy in his place, as we see later in this passage. And so I don't think any of us would argue that ideally relationships with friends, significant others, our families are better in person than, say, virtually or or long distance Our own families are a model for how we should consider our church family, too. There's simply no substitute for being face-to-face with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there was, I don't think Paul would be writing this, nor would every effort have been made, or even would he care to send Timothy. And we're living in a strange time here after the pandemic, where technology has made it possible to have relationships or community without actually being together physically. And I'll be frank, there are good reasons to not attend church in person. To view virtually, like if you're sick or out of town. But if it's out of convenience or comfort, can I be honest with you and say that it will never be able to replace meeting together in this room as a family in worship. Hypothetical question for you. Imagine for a sec when Jesus returns. What if he decided that he's just going to do it via Zoom? (laughs) He'll just send us a link or something. 
Bogus, right? Even with the best internet connection, what a letdown that would be. But what a world of a difference it makes that we get to meet our Savior face to face one day and be with him forever. But sure, okay. Let's say you attend regularly. We're all here together, right? But I don't want us to neglect that the most important part of this is that just because you're physically present doesn't mean you're actively present in each other's lives. So beyond the walls of this church and outside of Sunday services, would you say that you're actually doing life with a community of believers? Not just hanging out, but relationships where we're sharing our lives with each other. The good, the bad, the hard, the sad. It's only Dr. Seuss. Um, yeah, that's where my train of thought now. But not just hanging out, but relationships where we're sharing, each other's lives, sharing with each other uh, with a common purpose of glorifying God. Is this true of your relationships? Hey, and if you're doing this, keep doing it. Keep growing in this. But I have a feeling that the majority of us would agree that we have a lot of work to do. And so I want us to just pause for a moment and honestly ask yourself, do you really, really love the people around you? Do you actually care about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a genuine concern to know and to be known by the people here? See, I think we all want to say that we do. I think we like the idea of caring for others. But I think that's as far as we get sometimes. This is a good idea. A nice recommendation. But wishing the best for each other is not the same as serving each other, weeping with each other, rejoicing or praying or challenging or encouraging one another. So we have to ask ourselves, what's stopping us from cultivating these friendships? Maybe vulnerability doesn't come easy because it means you have to take a risk to reach out and connect with someone, to let someone in. Maybe it's just easier to stay in your comfort zone and not have to connect with anyone at all. Maybe it's a sense of pride or arrogance, thinking that you can navigate this Christian life all on your own. And let's be real, people are difficult. All of us. We all have differences of opinions or ways of thinking or ways of living that we may not all agree with. And especially in this hyper-polarized world where these differences turn into opposition, and opposition turns into friction. And I think what we end up doing is we treat each other based on our opinion of what that person deserves. Rather than realizing that what unites us is far stronger than our differences. The blood of Christ is what allows all of us to call each other family. A bond that's stronger than our very own bloodlines. The gospel transcends these differences. And so I pray that we would surrender to the Lord what keeps us from loving each other. Because the honest truth is, and I need us to hear this loud and clear, we cannot fully be what we're supposed to be apart from each other. Let me say that again. 
We cannot fully be what we're supposed to be apart from each other. We're designed to function as one body, which is why relationship is, is crucial for the health of our faith, as well as for the health of our church. It's not about the building or the programs that we have that determine the health of our church. It's us. So let's not settle for mediocre fellowship. Let's, let's show up for each other. Let's share our lives with each other. Let's make time for each other. You can, you can host a meetup. You can join a small group. Or maybe you just have to start by saying hi to somebody. The truth is we cannot enjoy God fully without real fellowship. And yes, the gospel can transcend all barriers. But as we move on, what we're going to see is that, that doesn't mean Satan isn't going to try to interfere anyway. And so the second reminder for today is Satan will present obstacles to hinder our faithfulness. Satan will present obstacles to hinder our faithfulness. And so we said, we said that Paul wanted to see them face to face, and, and now he goes on to say why. He says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. So remember, Paul's explaining that the church had been ripped away from him, but he's clear that it's not because of random chance or circumstance but rather Satan himself is preventing him from doing so. We're not told exactly in what way this took place, but we can assume that the Thessalonians had an understanding of what Paul is referring to. But either way, Satan was getting in the way of what Paul was trying to accomplish. And so the first thing we have to recognize is that Satan is real. You might have heard that quote before, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And it's honestly a good quote, but I believe that even if we know that he exists, I think we underestimate how diligently he works in the shadows. In the context of this passage, like I said, we don't know how Satan hindered Paul, whether it was working through the sins of man and influencing laws, causing persecution, was it sickness or disease, or was it the, was it the, the, the thorn in Paul's flesh that he talks about, or was it the devil tormenting him? But the point is that Satan is not short on weapons or strategy. And this could be a sermon of its own, but, but at the very least, we can say that Satan fights against our efforts to be faithful to God. See if any of the following relates. Do you see that Satan causes sinful acts to take place against us, stirring us with deep doubts about God? Does he work through temptations when we're at our weakest moments, causing us to stumble and drift apart from God? Satan twists scripture. He lies to us, manipulates our hearts, stirs up division and rivalry amongst brothers and sisters. And he certainly and subtly gets in the way of daily time and attention to the Lord. See, Satan doesn't always place something blaring in your face to distract you from walking the straight and narrow. He doesn't place obvious forks in the road. 
Sometimes it's just the gradual and hardly noticeable shift a few degrees off the path. And before you know it, you're miles away from God and you've compromised on your convictions. If you're faithfully following Jesus, there's a good chance that Satan is probably scheming. And so what we need to ask ourselves is, one, are you faithfully following Jesus? Because if you don't notice Satan intervening in your life, even in subtle ways, then maybe that just means he already has. And two, where in your life do you believe that Satan is hindering you? Where in your life do you believe Satan is hindering you? Is it in your fellowship or your speech? Conflict with one another? Other hidden sins that he convinces you is not that important, not big of a deal? Is it your pride or arrogance? Is it a desire for, for the riches of this world, the comforts of this world? Does he present obstacles to your time in the Word? Does he get in the way of your prayer life? Does he get in the way of your relationship with the Lord? Church, he's going to use whatever he can to get in the way of you and you and God. And it's the most deceptive when he takes the good and necessary parts of your life, makes them the ultimate things, taking God off the throne. And now we see in verse 18 that Paul fought back again and again. And I believe this is a prescription for us. When Satan impedes progress, we can either let him have his way with us or we can trust the Lord, ask him to fight on our behalf, remove the hindrances that prevent us from faithfully pursuing Christ in our lives. Where do you see the need to insert truth where where Satan has uh, inserted lies? Where do you need to repent and push through what the devil's placed in front of you and say yes to the Lord? In 1 Peter 5, it says the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we're to be sober-minded and watchful so we can resist him. Do we get that? This talk about Satan isn't to make us paranoid and afraid, but prepared and attentive. Spurgeon had this to say about Satan. We are not to be alarmed when Satan hinders us, for it is proof that we are on the Lord's side and are doing the Lord's work. In his strength, we will win the victory and triumph over our adversary. And so I don't want us to get this backwards. Yes, we absolutely cannot afford to underestimate the devil's work. We need to be conscious of that for sure. But we also don't need to panic. Despite how he opposes the mission of God, Satan is still not the opposite of God. Are you following me? He is not, this is not about equal and opposite forces. It's Newton's third law for the nerds in here. God has no opposite. God has no rival. God is on another stratosphere. There is no one like him. Satan might win some battles, but it's God that wins the war. And in God's wisdom and sovereignty, while he allows Satan to operate in this broken world, the victory is already secure. And ultimately, it will be for our good and his glory. And we simply get front seats to view it. And look, that doesn't mean that uh, things will be easy or that we can coast. 
If anything, it's going to be muddy, it's going to be rocky, it's going to be tough. But the beauty of it is that we're in this together, and it's Christ that guides us. We said the followers of Christ are called to be involved in each other's lives, right? That means we're called to confess our sins to each other, to hold each other accountable, to keep each other focused, to bear one another's burdens, to resist Satan together, push through the obstacles, and pursue Christ together. That's why we need each other. And so as we continue on this passage, it's not only because of Satan, but we see that affliction also occurs because of our obedience to the Lord, which is going to bring us to our third reminder. We are destined to suffer for our devotion to Jesus. We are destined to suffer for our devotion to Jesus. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 together. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain." So we see here that Timothy is a, is a friend, brother, and co-worker to Paul, very near and dear to him. And since Paul wasn't able to go, he made the sacrificial decision to have to send Timothy to Thessalonica instead. And he did this with the hopes that Timothy would be able to exhort and establish them in their faith. The reason being, we are destined for affliction. In other words, when we live out our faith, we can guarantee the God-ordained affliction is coming our way. And during these times, it can be easy for us to lose our way, for Satan to get a a foothold and, and put a wedge in between us and God. And so this is Paul's message to this young church. He wants them to be able to weather the storm by expecting affliction, but also by being so rooted in your faith that you become unshakable. So the remedy to affliction isn't to run away from it. It's not to avoid it, but to withstand the storms by being so grounded in your faith, by trusting Jesus, relying on his strength, believing his word. That's how we we become immovable. Then we can willingly take on affliction. And let's be clear that that the suffering that Christians in America face is vastly different than the heavy persecution that our brothers and sisters on the other side of the planet endure. Other churches around the globe physically suffer, they're imprisoned, they're martyred for their faith. And so as we talk about affliction in America, let's remember them, let's keep them at the forefront of our minds. Because it's simply not the same. But it still demonstrates the seriousness of the cost of discipleship. In the U.S., however, Christianity is legal We're obviously here, we're practicing this, we're worshiping together today without any worries. And so a lot of the affliction that we encounter is more related to the intolerance we face for our biblical worldviews. While we more or less can feel safe physically, there seems to be increasing hostility for being a Christian. And we we definitely see this when we talk about hot-button issues of the day. 
you talk about gender or sexuality or, or, um, or abortion, religious liberty. And the, and the, and the thing is, the, the bolder and more clear we are about our stances, the more credibility we seem to lose. The more stigma our faith receives, the more insulted we feel. It's hard to be a Christian here. So I think much of the affliction that we have is because of a ridicule we take on for declaring that Jesus is Lord. And I think there's a few reasons for these appointments with affliction. And first of all, we have to remember that affliction for obedience, in this sense, is not punishment. It's for a sanctifying effect on our souls. It tests our obedience and boldness. It strengthens our faith when we have no choice but to lean on God and not our own understanding. And so it increases our dependency on the Lord. And on this side of eternity, we'll never be able to please man and God, so we'll have to choose. And while we might be shocked at what the culture has come to in relation to Christianity, this was not something that was surprised, that, that surprised God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the word of God is foolishness to those that don't know him. And the second reason for affliction is that it's necessary for us to share in Christ's sufferings. While we can feel so mischaracterized for our beliefs, Jesus was sent fully knowing that he would be insulted and misunderstood more than we could ever imagine. And he suffered on the cross for our sin to secure our salvation. In John 15, 18, God says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so we share in his sufferings. It brings us to a place of humility where we can understand our Savior in a different light, in a greater light, and the love that he has for us and what he endured on our behalf. Romans 8, chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Such a good verse. But I think what we struggle with is that we want to be glorified with God without having to suffer like he did. But scripture is clear that both go hand in hand. We know that God is good. And because he, because he appointed, and so because he appointed affliction, he's also sovereign over affliction. It's affliction that helps us make much of Jesus. And believing this is the only way that we can consider it pure joy when we face trials. So the next time we face trials of, of great difficulty, let's remember that God is working things out for you. So the question that comes to my mind now is that when affliction comes our way, how will you respond? Will you be caught off guard and your faith wavers? Or will we know to expect it, lean into it, and choose to suffer well? Can we suffer faithfully as, as our Savior did? In verse 5, it says that Paul couldn't bear being apart from the church and not, and not knowing how they were doing in their walk. He couldn't bear being apart from the Thessalonians, right? This is the same Paul that endured being stoned, starved, imprisoned, shipwrecked. But what he couldn't endure was the possibility of the Thessalonian church struggling. 
Again, we see the love that Paul has for the people. Can we emulate that? Do we have the same concern for the well-being of others? Mind you, he's facing persecution, but his heart is with the Thessalonians. And so he sends Timothy to exhort, to encourage, right? So this life isn't easy. I think we've established that. But we too might need to be the Timothy for another who is facing affliction, provide counsel or encouragement, and direct them to Jesus, or at the very least, be a shoulder to cry on or an ear to listen. Let's do that. With that said, we come to our last point. Last reminder is this, our faith is a work in progress. Our faith is a work in progress. Let's read uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 10 together. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Timothy reports back to Paul about how the church is doing, and Paul is actually relieved. He's comforted knowing that despite the ongoing struggles and persecution, they've been standing in their faith, and he breathes a joyous sigh of relief. He continues to pray that he gets to see them again. And what's also fascinating is Paul was so relieved about their affliction that it relieved his own affliction. But just like you'd expect, Paul, he reminds them while they're doing well, there's still holes in your faith. He asks the Lord to provide to them what is lacking in their faith for the deficiencies that exist. Their faith is still a work in progress as is ours. And so we come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we aim to grow horizontally in relationship with each other as we corporately worship together and study the word together like like we're doing now. And we hope to also especially grow in our relationship with the Lord vertically. And so God is constantly supplying for us what is lacking in our faith every Sunday. And so I hope we take seriously the word we receive. What if we actually applied it diligently for the remainder of the week, every week, every year? Wouldn't it be amazing to see that the people we become, that we would make him greater, make less of us? But it's also not just about Sundays, right? Last week, Pastor Rob challenged us to be in the Word every day, no matter what it looks like. And so I want us to continue that for this next week. Can we make a plan to be in the Word each day this week? We can start small if you have to, but can we plan for it? It's just that we have to decide if we're just going to be hearers of the Word, or will we believe it and do what it says? And so on this side of eternity, our faith isn't perfect, and it will not be. And as we expect affliction, 
As we repent of our sin and as we make much of the name of Jesus, we need to keep leaning into the truths of Scripture so that we continue to know deeper our Lord and Savior. We are most satisfied in Him. When we are most satisfied in Him, we can endure what comes our way. And so that's going to bring us to our big idea for today. That we can confidently face affliction through faith in Christ and fellowship with others. Let me say that again. We can confidently face affliction through faith in Christ and fellowship with others. And as we close, I want us to remember that we should be expecting Satan to bring difficulties. We should know that our own obedience will bring affliction. But we're in this together, and we're going to work together. And it's God that will equip us to endure this together, to embrace and rejoice even in suffering. Life is hard. But God is good. Amen? I don't know what everyone walked into service with this morning. What your heart is heavy with. What your mind is struggling with. The circumstances that you face the moment you leave this place. But one thing I know, and hear me when I say this, you will find no security apart from God. The same God that allows suffering and ordained affliction is the same God that provides the rescue to carry you through it. He always delivers. And as we end here, let me give you a few of his promises found in Scripture. This is what God has to say about affliction. Psalm 34, 17 through 20 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond, beyond all comparison. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. And I can keep going on and on, but let's, let's just end with this one. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. It says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And so church, let's do just that. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.